I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And welcome to another edition of More Outdoors, our extra two-hour journey into the great outdoors every Saturday morning. I'll tell you what, weather over here at St. Hubert's Cathedral not looking too bad. We actually got a little sunshine over here and looking at the radar. I think most of that has moved to the east, that a rough system that passed through earlier. Uh, those of you that might be listening along the Mississippi Gulf Coast and the Alabama coast, it looks like you're still in for some of it. But as way it's moving out of here, unless some stuff pops up behind it or that system that's up around the Shreveport area decides to make a downturn, I think we're going to be good for a few hours and get a chance to get out and enjoy some great outdoors. All right, coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk to two fishing rodeo directors. It is rodeo season in Louisiana now, it's, once it gets started around Memorial Day, we have virtually a rodeo in every weekend until uh, October and the hunting seasons get here. Then they become a little bit more sporadic. But for the most part, you've got at least one you can go to. Robbie Rabb, who is the director of the Italian-American Rodeo, is going to be joining us to talk about his event. And Bob Savan, longtime director of the Grand Isle Speckled Trout Rodeo, is also going to join us and talk about his. That's all coming up in the 8 o'clock hour. This hour, we're going to dedicate to National Safe Boating Week and some activities that will be going along with that. Of course, we never talk about this enough, safe boating. And uh, last weekend, as a matter of fact, boy, it was uh, touch and go for a while there with the Paddle Palooza, the kayak tournament. Uh, if you were tuned in earlier, I was talking to Eric Mohabarak, and I was watching that radar, and I was mentioning on the air, you know, I'm waiting to hear from the Bayou Coast Kayak Fishing Club, the organizer of that tournament, are you going to delay the start, let that system move through the east, or are you maybe going to shorten the time to where the weigh-in, uh, every fisherman would have less time, and, you know, people were stretched out all along Highway 1, and uh, they made a tough decision, and like Eric said, I mean, you've got a lot of things on the line, and uh, uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but I'm kind of wondering if uh, they had to do it over again, if the organizers would not have maybe either delayed it postponed it till the next day, shortened the wait time, or made some concession because uh, some people, and then again, it's up to the individual. You don't, you don't have to go, and based on where you are and what you saw, it came up very quickly, some of those water spouts, and uh, understand one kayak was totally lost, some people lost some equipment, but fortunately no injuries or fatalities, God forbid, occurred on that. So that's a big part of safe boating. And there's a lot to talk about with safe boating, and there's an open house going to be coming to New Orleans, and we're going to talk to Paul Bernard, who is with the U.S. Coast Guard. In fact, he's their recreational boating safety program manager. Paul, thanks for taking some time to talk with us this morning. Good morning, Don, and good morning to your listeners. Paul, if you would, uh, I, I know, I think I saw where you made some comments with regard to that Paddle Palooza event that took place last week. I mean, this is right in your wheelhouse, safe boating and uh, maybe you can kind of take a look back at it now that we're a week removed and talk about, you know, decisions to go with it, delay it. And you brought up some very good parts about the people who were prepared for it fared out much better than people who just maybe didn't think it through and don't have the right equipment to, to get through storms like that when you're in a paddle craft. 
Sure, Don. That's a that's really a tough decision to have to make when you've uh, you, you know the planning that goes into that begins probably six months out, and uh, you've got sponsors that are heavily involved in it. You have people that build vacations around it. It's a uh, it's a tough decision to have to make. So uh, I, I certainly empathize with them on that. And I think what really happened here is the the water spouts that created all the problems kind of came out ahead of that front. So the people that were watching the radar as they should if they had a, have a radar app on their cell phone, were probably looking at the meat of that system thinking they could make it back before it got there. But these water spouts that created the problems kind of popped up out in front of that thing. So that I think that's what created most of the problems. But what I, what I like to focus on is the fact that the, uh, so many of the paddlers were well prepared. Uh, the club has a policy that if you're going to fish in a tournament, you have to keep your PFD on the entire time. And uh, in fact, that proved to be a uh, proved to be a lifesaver. I interviewed a couple of people after the tournament. Uh, one couple was out there fishing together. They both capsized. Uh, as a matter of routine, they do not wear their life jackets, and uh, kind of grudgingly did so to comply with the, the club rules for this tournament. And uh, in turn, it saved their lives. So, good on the Bayou Coast Kayak Fishing Club for having that safety policy in place. Paul, I don't know if we want to get into the safety equipment and the measures of a kit or something like that, or if you would just like to refer them to a website where they can maybe uh, get an idea of some of the things that, that will help out and some of the things we learned from this event that people had, you know, waterproofing, your your cell phone is very important, uh, having signaling devices or anything else. Uh, did you want to get into that or just refer them to a place where they can find it? Of course, next week I'm sure you have a, a lot of displays with regard to safety items for boats. Yeah, next week I will. I'll uh, I'll have a uh, what I'll call an inshore ditch kit that I carry on my kayak, and I recommend for for other people to do so as well. And we'll have an offshore ditch kit there as well. But uh, perhaps the best place to go, you can go to the Bayou Ki- uh, Coast Kayak Fishing Club's uh, Facebook group, and immediately following the tournament, I posted a uh, a picture of what I keep in my ditch kit, and it's just a small waterproof box that i keep on the deck of the kayak that's ready to grab in a hurry if i have to like uh like the folks fishing the tournament had to and then uh you can uh you can come to our facebook group uh one of the first things i did when i started this job was tried to find more ways to get the safety message out there to the boating public so i created a facebook group and as often the case of government uh with government sites and emails and such it's a fairly long name but it is u.s coast guard Heartland, H-E-R-T-L-A-N-D, Safe Boating. So if you go into Facebook and put that in a search engine, it will take you to our Facebook group. And uh, anybody that has any questions or wants to discuss safety, uh, regulations, required equipment, the law, best practices, or anything like that, join our group, pop right in, and have a conversation with us. We've got that group uh, staffed out with with career law enforcement and SAR and boating safety specialists. Very good. Uh, Paul, I've been collecting for the last couple of weeks uh, some of our listeners uh, what they feel is the most dangerous boating locations, and I've kind of got it down to a top ten, and I'll be posting those on my website. So I want to invite people this morning to continue to text those areas in at 870-870 and help identify those. Because I think if people read them and see them, maybe it'll just give them that little bit extra caution 
when they're entering one of those areas, knowing that at least someone, if not them, feels like there's some problems there with being a dangerous or hazardous location. But if you would, tell us about the, the, the open house that's going to be going on at the Coast Guard Station at the Bucktown Harbor. This is going to be one week from today, from 10 to 2. If you could kind of give us the, the lineup. All right. Well, there's going to be a couple of things that are going to be going on all day during the event, through the entirety of the event, and then there's going to be some uh, some demonstrations that that uh, that take place uh, kind of singularly through the event. But uh, the demonstration, interactive demonstration stations that we're going to have set up through the day, we're going to have a, a, a helicopter on scene with all the rescue equipment. You'll be able to talk to pilots and rescue swimmers. We're going to have tours of the stations and boats. Uh, we're going to have a table with a whole lot of different inflatable PFDs. We're going to have have one of each in the closed position, one in the open position, and we're going to actually demo some. We're going to put some on some of our guests and uh, and pull that cord and let them experience what it's like for that PFD to open up when the CO2 cylinder activates. Uh, we're going to have a table of all the required equipment for uh, for your average recreational boater, and then. Right beside that, we're going to have, all right, so for example, you, you go out and you buy a life jacket. A navy blue life jacket with no markings on it at all will meet the requirement, but we'd love to see a brightly colored life jacket with reflective tape, maybe a marker light, and your boat registration numbers on it. So we'll kind of walk people through what, what will get them through a law enforcement boarding and what will make a, uh, a big difference should they, ever, uh, should they ever run into a problem on the water. Um, we're going to have a BUI education station. We'll have some impairment goggles there. We'll even let the public try a couple of field sobriety tests just for fun. We're going to have a VHF DSC distress demo unit there. I'll bet if we surveyed your listeners, the ones that have a VHF radio, and asked how many know what that little red button on their VHF radio is, I bet we would find that 90% don't know exactly what it does and haven't, haven't set it up to, uh, to do what it needs to do in an emergency. So we're going to take some of the mystery out of that. It's, it's really simple technology to take advantage of. It's very important and it's very effective. So uh, we'll, we'll have a demonstration unit there and some handouts that will set people up to, to take advantage of that technology. We're going to have the inshore and offshore ditch kits I mentioned earlier. We're going to have a damage control demonstration unit. Uh, I, I built this thing up to have fittings that, that are uh, through-hull fittings that are common to recreational boats, and uh, we're going to we're going to give our uh, attendees some some hose clamps and some other basic items, and say, "Hey, your boat's sinking. What are you going to do?" And give them a chance to uh, to, to get a feel for a real life taking on water situation. I've got a couple of doctors and paramedics who are going to set up a uh, first aid uh, for boaters. Uh, demonstration and education station. The Bayou Coast Kayak Fishing Club is going to be there. They're going to have a static display. They'll display the things that they recommend you take out when you go uh, kayaking or paddle boarding. Uh, we're going to have some kids' activities. Uh, Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries has a volunteer uh, organization that's going to bring their backyard bass game in for kids to play. The uh, Coast Guard Auxiliary and the New Orleans Power Squadron will be there. Um, they'll sign you up for classes. We're going to uh, to allow the public to come in by uh, by land or sea, Don. And uh, if you want to have your boat uh, a safety inspection done on your boat while you're there, you can get that done. And uh, if you pass the inspection, you'll get a a sticker that when Coast Guard enforcement sees, they know that you've passed the safety inspection and that things are good to go on your boat. And uh, and in all likelihood, it might save you the uh, 
the inconvenience of a an on the water safety check. Uh, during the event, uh, the the helos. Go ahead, Don. No, no, I was going to tell you to go ahead. We're going to take a break in a couple minutes, but uh, keep going, and we'll come back and talk more about it after the break. Sure. We're going to have a live helo demonstration. Uh, when uh, when they get ready to depart, they're going to actually demonstrate a rescue. Um, we're going to do a law enforcement boarding demonstration uh, where a boarding officer is going to board a, uh, a private boat and show the public what to expect in the event that they do get that Coast Guard boarding. We're going to do a, uh, a complete field sobriety test demonstration. We're going to demonstrate one of the new tetherless uh, wireless engine cutoff switches. We're actually going to uh, get out there on the water and show the public how this thing works. If the public wants to, they can bring in some expired flares. There will be a couple of times throughout the event that we kind of walk out on the peninsula there in a safe place and uh, and let the public practice with their flares. Um, and if we, if we don't get the public to bring in any of theirs, we've got some that will show you how those work anyway. Um, let's see what else we got, Don. I made some notes here. Uh, well, tell you what, while you're checking your notes, while you're checking your notes, Paul, why don't we go ahead and take this break? i got to get it in. We'll come back and do that. also got a couple of text questions for you to answer when we come back. We'll talk with Paul Bernard. Paul is with the U.S. Coast Guard. He's talking about the National Safe Boating Open House. That's coming from 10 to 2 in New Orleans at uh, the Bucktown Harbor. And uh, we're going to be back to continue this conversation. If you've got a question or a comment for him, we'd love to hear from you. Text me at 870-870, or you can call us at 504-260-6368. It's more outdoors on WWL 105.3 FM HD2 and live streaming at WWL.com. And welcome back. Uh, we're talking with Paul Bernard. Paul is with the U.S. Coast Guard. He's a recreational boat safe boating specialist, and uh, he's going to be actively promoting safe boating next weekend. Uh, this will be at the Bucktown Harbor. It's at the Coast Guard Station in New Orleans from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, boaters can come by land or come by sea. You can have a free courtesy vessel safety check by the Coast Guard Auxiliary and the New Orleans Power Squadron. And he's been telling us about a long list of demos and exhibits that will be there. Paul, why don't you continue and tell us what else we're going to see there. you you got a full list there. It's going to take the whole 10 to 2, I think, for everybody to see everything that's going to be there. Yeah, we've tried to wrap a little fun with our uh, with our safety event here, Don. It's kind of tough to pull off fun and safety at the same time, but I think we've got it nailed down here. What would it be in South Louisiana to have a festival without crawfish? So we're going to have some crawfish, some shrimp. We're going to flip some burgers and serve the public drinks for free as long as those supplies last. Of course, when you do something like this, you never know how well it's going to be attended. So uh, I hope we're well prepared to handle all the people that come out there. But if it's... Uh, if it's such a success that we can't reasonably accommodate everybody, then we'll just make it bigger next year. There'll be some official ceremonies during the event. Uh, we'll have a few VIPs there to make some proclamations and, and to kind of do a formal kickoff to National Safe Boating Week. We've got some pretty neat door prizes uh, that we'll give the public. Uh, the kids that come and participate in games will be uh, – uh, we've, we've got a good bit of uh, surprises for, the, uh, for those kids. And uh, – more than anything else, Don, this is going to be kind of like a community-building kind of event. The Coast Guard has always enjoyed such a great relationship with the public. Uh, we're grateful for the support that we get from the public, and I'm sure they're grateful for the support that uh, that we provide. And it's just been a good relationship. So this, so this is a uh, it's it's a community-building thing as much as anything else. 
Paul, I, I got a question in on a text board from a listener that wanted to know if the voter certification would be available there. Um, I, I'm, I got to think that the class is a little more extensive than what you'd have time for there, but I'm sure they can get information on where and when they can get signed up for one because, you know, we've got the law now. Anyone born after January 1, 1984 has to require, is required to pass the approved voting education course to operate a boat with over 10 horsepower. And uh, will there be some information there on the certification classes? Absolutely. Both the New Orleans Power Squadron and the Coast Guard Auxiliary will be signing people up for classes at the event. So maybe a good way to look at this is you'll get the basics when you go to the class, and this this event will take you just a little beyond those basics. You know, I think one of the most important things that that you've mentioned was the, the PFD demonstration and the display of the different types that are out there. You know, I, in the business I'm in, unfortunately, I, I get the the listings and the releases on all the boating fatalities that happen, and it never ceases to amaze me how many people were failing to wear those PFDs. And, you know, sometimes it happens in, in calm weather and there's obstructions or certain things happen. But other times, I mean, there's actually some very hazardous and threatening conditions that they're in, and, and you know, at those times, everyone should put the PFD on. It's not a law to have it, but especially now with some of the newer ones that are out there, it was always those old K-Pak ones were, were hot and they were bothersome and people hated to wear them, but now they've got them so trim and neat-fitting with the you know the, the CO2 cartridges in them now. There's no reason not to have one to wear. And I think if there was one message to get out to people, it was make sure you have a PFD and make sure you know how to use it and it works. That's right. Um, for, for so long, we've been telling people to wear their PFDs, and I still think when people hear that term PFD, they imagine that uh, that bulky type 2 uh, or the K-POC one that you mentioned or a vest type one that might feel hot or restrictive or cumbersome. But modern uh, inflatable PFDs, they're, they're cool and they're comfortable and they're, uh, and they're more affordable than ever. The one that I wear um, is a belt style. It's uh, it's literally barely larger than than your average belt and, uh, and barely bulkier than that belt. I forget I have it on. Um, when I have guests on my boat, I toss those things to them. They uh, show them briefly how they work. They clip into them. If we, uh, if we do a little island hopping and get in and out of the boat, what I found, and it's fascinating to watch this happen, is that uh, as soon as people pop back into the boat, come off the island, pop back into the boat, they grab those things and instinctively put them on. Uh, so I've, I've kind of fallen in love with them because uh, nobody complains about wearing them, they're, and, and they're truly comfortable. They they offer a lower level of protection. Uh, they're they're a Type Three device. A lot of the inflatables, like the the suspender type, if you will, uh, provide a higher level of protection and have uh, have automatic activation devices. Some people prefer those, but uh, I can assure you, there's a PFD out there that's affordable, that's comfortable that you will wear, and uh, it will make a, a difference if there's ever anything that goes wrong out there. You know, one of the things that, that I'm always concerned with about mine is, is um, is that thing going to inflate when I pull that cord? You know, uh, how, is there any way to check them other than, you know, using the CO2 card, and then you got to replace it? Oh, absolutely, and that's, that's another thing we're going to be demonstrating at this particular demonstration table. There's if, if you take the one like like you're talking about that has the uh, the, the hydrostatic uh, activation mechanism, if if that fails, you can pull the tab to pierce the CO2 cylinder, 
And if that fails, when you when you open this thing up, you'll see that it has an oral inflation tube on it. So there's there's really three ways for you to activate that one that you have. And if you're a little concerned about whether or not it'll work, at the beginning, we don't really have boating seasons down here in coastal Louisiana, but you might have <laughs> listeners right. in areas that, that, <laughs> that do have boating seasons. Just once a year, take that thing, open it up, inflate it with an oral inflation tube, leave it for 24 hours, come back and check it and see if it's uh, – if it's still nice and firm, if it hasn't leaked down, then uh, you can probably assume you're good to go for another year or so. Good, good advice. Paul, where do we stand now, state of Louisiana, on uh, boating fatalities and accidents? I know for a long time we were a leader of the nation, and, and I don't think it was solely attributed to the fact that people were just careless boaters or there was a lot more uh, BUIs than other states. I think it's because of the, the opportunity is there. We've got so much water, so many water sports, that I think the opportunity for these accidents to happen was a lot higher. Where are we now on statistics? Have we made any progress on that with all the implementation of the safe boating and people like yourself doing these safe boating weeks and demonstrations? It's it's really hard to measure, Don. The data is is difficult to sort out. So let me, let me see if I can explain that a little bit. Uh, we know how many registered boats we have in Louisiana. That that information is readily available. We don't know how many paddlers we have in Louisiana, although when there's paddlecraft fatalities, they get lumped into our recreational boating fatality data. And uh, we also don't know our exposure hours. That's, uh, that's part of any kind of statistical analysis is you have to look at exposure hours. So... Um, because we have longer seasons and we might spend more time on the water, we really can't compare our raw numbers to any other states in terms of accident or fatality rate. But in terms of the raw numbers of fatalities, Louisiana's held relatively steady at about 20 fatalities per year for the, call it the past five years. Um, I, uh, I hope that through doing things like we're doing with this National Safe Boating event, uh, that, that, that we can impact those numbers a little bit. I don't like being a part of a program where we're kind of flatline in our in our progress. So I'm going to be driven to uh, to to work with my partners to bring those numbers down even more yet. And you know, when you think about it, when somebody hears 20 fatalities in Louisiana, when you think about all the boaters, that that, that may not sound like a lot, but I'll, I'll tell you a quick story here. When I was running the rescue boats out of Dolphin Island, we ran a case out off the Dixie Bar off of Fort Morgan just outside the mouth of the Mobile Bay. It ended up being two fatalities, and um, the, the two fatalities were the man that lives across the street from me and his father. And when you personalize what seems like just a, a comparatively few fatalities, it, it, it strikes you it strikes you differently. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of suffering associated with that. And, uh, and the bad thing about it is they're almost always preventable. When you look at highway fatalities, you know, you have hundreds of cars in close proximity to each other all going 70 miles an hour. It's you can almost understand when something goes wrong in, that, in those circumstances. But but out on the water, when we're in pursuit of our pleasures and our passions, it, it's it, it's avoidable. So many of the accidents and fatalities we have, have are completely avoidable by just doing a few right things. We talked about the life jackets. That's obvious. Um, 
intoxication plays a large role in our boating fatalities. Um, but when you start parsing the data, if you look at the primary contributing factors beyond alcohol, they're identified as inattention, improper lookout, excess speed, navigation rules, violations, and inexperience. And those truly all fall under the category of, of navigation rules type issues, since the navigation rules require us to keep a safe lookout, to proceed at a safe speed. We can kind of lump those all into navigation rules, and it it's really this. It boils down to paying attention. I, uh, I got a call from a friend about two months ago, and most boaters know if they're being overtaken that they that they are the stand-on vessel. They're, they're truly the most privileged vessel on the water is a vessel being overtaken. So my friend tells me that a friend of his is running along in a bayou and, and hooks a left to go into another smaller bayou. And when he did, a boat that was overtaken him ran into him. And his, his thought was, well, you know, I was a stand-on vessel. I was being overtaken. But you have to understand, too, that when you're the stand-on vessel in an overtaking situation, for example, you're required to maintain course and speed. And before you alter your course at any time out there on the water, you've got to take a look around. Uh, it's it's easy in South Louisiana to feel like we're out away from everybody and everything, but rest assured, there's going to be other boaters out there. So you got to kind of keep your head on the swivel. Paul, something else uh, that I think people get confused with, uh, no-wake zones. What exactly does a no-wake zone mean? Uh, I see people that, you know, they slow down, and the fact that they slow down sometimes, they push more water than if they were running at full speed. So when you enter a no-wake zone, what is the responsibility of the boater as far as his wake? Well, it, it's it's just that. It's it's no wake. Break your wake to an absolute minimum. A lot of people do what you're talking about. They drop down to what I call plowing speed, and in doing so, they throw an even larger wake. But it's also not always about the wake, Don. Uh, if you think a lot about a lot of the launch areas that you go to and where you see those no wake zones, they're, they're in congested areas. They're in areas where there's uh, traffic coming out of uh, boat docks and harbors, for example, where people are trying to put boats on trailers, uh, might be in areas where there's uh, obstructed lines of sight. So there's reasons for that no-wake zone besides just the wake. It, uh, the, the, the speed needs to be reduced, uh, maybe perhaps due to congestion or some of those other factors. But it means you know, just in, that. In it, the... means, it means no-wake. Take, take a look. When you slow down, take a look and, and see what what kind of waves are coming off your boat. If it's more than just a ripple, you're you're operating outside of the law. It's also come up in discussions that people say, well, that's not a legal no-wake zone. You know, somebody just puts up a sign because they don't want boats passing by throwing a wake. What, what constitutes a legal no-wake zone where someone could actually be ticketed for it? Let's let's say this first, is that the Coast Guard cannot enforce a no-wake zone per se. Uh, because if the no-wake zones are established by state, it's a state law. Uh, we can't cover it with federal laws. However, if we we see a boat that's causing a, uh, that's causing a wake in a no-wake zone or they're traveling at a rate of speed that's, uh, that, that's unsafe, we can write a negligent operations ticket. So no-wake zones are established by the states. And... It can be difficult for a boater to know when somebody's just put up their own no-wake zone and when there's a legally enforceable no-wake zone. I know like in a lot of areas I go to, there'll be a Jefferson no-wake zone established by Jefferson Parish Ordinance such and such. Uh, and those signs look more official than some of the ones I see on somebody's dock that they just want people to slow down for.
Did, did that answer your question? It's your, the voters are not always going to be able to to tell the difference between a legal no wake zone and and one that somebody just wants people to slow down. But I think if you apply common sense to the picture, if you're in an area where there's a lot of boats tied up to dots, uh, imagine that's your boat. Do you want that boat rocked and bounced back and forth uh, against the dock? Uh, you know, just kind of apply a little common sense to that equation. And if you're in any doubt, just go ahead and slow down. Paul, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, I want to run down some of these most dangerous boating locations that people have been telling me about, and I think we'll see a pattern here on on most of them. And also anything else you want to add about National Safe Boating Week and also the the big promotion that's coming up. Uh, It's going to be an open house, Coast Guard Station, Bucktown Harbor, one week from today, 10 to 2. Public is welcome to come by, lots of demos, exhibits, and most of all, educational opportunities. We'll be right back with Paul Bernard, the Recreational Boating Safety Program Manager for U.S. Coast Guard's 8th District, right after this. And we're talking about safe boating with Paul Bernard, a recreational boating safety specialist for the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, getting ready for next Saturday's 10 to 2 open house for the public at the Coast Guard Station, New Orleans, near Bucktown Harbor, Boaters are welcome to come uh, by land, by sea. Going to be some refreshments and food and lots of demonstrations of all types. Uh, Paul, I've tried to develop this list of our listeners' top ten most dangerous boat locations, and I'm going to run some of these down. Uh, And and, and there's some commonalities between most of them that, that I think we can identify why they're hazardous. One is the jump in Venice on opening day of duck season. I also have uh, the Reggio launch during duck season, which is poorly lit. It's narrow, and there's a crowd there. And then I have a Delacro launch during a good trout body. It looks like a scene from Jaws. Also, the Chef Pass rocks. And I think the thing that all of those locations have in common is it's a lot of people in a short period of time, and they're in a hurry for a specific reason. And I think those all... Uh, kind of fit into the same category, and I don't know, other than just common sense and common courtesy, if there's anything else that, you know, can be done to make those areas less hazardous. Yeah, you're, you're right about that, Don. We're squeezing uh, a lot of boaters into a, uh, a narrow, all of those, those waterways are narrow, into a narrow area in a concentrated period of time, and and everybody is in a hurry to get to where they're going, so... There's not a whole lot of way to alleviate the, uh, the obviously the congestion and uh, can't do anything about the the size of the waterway. You just got to build that extra time into your schedule. And I know it's tough if you're a duck hunter because I do it. It's no fun getting up at three o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> you may you may have to you may have to get up at two thirty to, uh, to 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 budget time to make it safe. But also when I think about duck hunters, Don, and you've seen this too. You start heading out there. There's a lot of people that don't have their boats lit at all, or if they're lit, they're lit very poorly. So we've got to get the right navigation lights on those boats. And let me say this while you're at it, while we're on this uh, this topic. One of my initiatives is to uh, is is to improve the safety in the in the hunting by boat community. Our, our duck hunters and and people you know in the Pearl River network are going to use their boats to go hog hunting. But I saw a lot of uh of accidents and unfortunately a few fatalities last year in the hunting community and i think what we're seeing with our duck hunters is they're they're loading those boats down with dogs and guns and decoys and uh, the safety equipment if it's on there it's buried beneath that stuff 
uh, they're running, as we mentioned earlier, without lights. And uh, and often, if you're especially if you're talking about the Mississippi River and that current, it is unforgiving. So we're going to uh, we're going to set up an operation where we're going to increase our enforcement effort uh, in, in the large hunting areas, like you just mentioned. That that definitely is needed, you know, because another <laughs> thing is. Duck hunting, the best duck hunting takes place during some the worst weather. I mean, you might have uh, these fronts come through, these north stiff north winds, and a lot of times because where duck hunters end up, it's in shallow waters, and they need a shallow draft small boat, but yet they got to get there. And a lot of times they, they take chances in getting out there in some of these smaller boats when you've got some really inclement weather and some high seas. You know, uh, two of the other places that were identified, and these both have something in common, is the, the Tickfar River and the Amit River Diversion Canal. And what they tell me there is there's a lot of party boat going on in there, a lot of BUI, a lot of drinking, loud music, that type of thing, which makes that unsafe. And, I mean, that can certainly be controlled. That's not a nature's hazard there. That's strictly man-made problems. No, and, and that's that's where I fit into this picture, Don. I, I partner with, uh, with Louisiana Wildlife and Fisheries with their – with their boating law administrator and their local supervisors to uh, to, to identify hot spots like that, and if uh, if we're seeing those as hot spots, when we when we know about it, we'll increase our patrol efforts there. Uh, we're we're patrolling with somewhat limited resources, though. When you think about the Coast Guard, our station in New Orleans is what we call a two boat station. They uh, they only have the ability to operate two boats at any given time. The the nearest Coast Guard Station to that is down in Venice or over in Gulfport, Mississippi. And then in Louisiana, we only have one more Coast Guard Station, and that's Grand Isle, and they have to cover almost all the way over to the to the Texas line. So our Coast Guard resources are limited, and then our wildlife and fisheries resources are, are, are limited as well. When you look at a map of South Louisiana and you look at all the waterways in there and you look at the number of officers they have to cover that, we're just limited, so in a lot of cases, we we rely on on people like the the ones that have given you the information about those being concern areas, pointing out to us the areas that they feel like need uh, need a little extra attention, and that's something that we do. Uh, in fact, Monday we're having a meeting at the Coast Guard Station in New Orleans where we're bringing in all our local partners and talking about those very things. So, uh, if you, if the public will put those things on our radar, we'll definitely give them our attention within the within our abilities, Don. Paul, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, BUI, boating on intoxication. Um, a lot of people don't realize that how serious an offense this is. It's similar to, or actually, I think it's identical. What happens? You can lose your driver's license uh, by being uh, under the influence while you're boating, and certainly it takes, I believe, much more dexterity to operate a boat than it does a, a vehicle. Um, you certainly in more traffic with a vehicle, but you know I think the threat is nonetheless any any less significant for someone who is impaired while they're boating as they are while they're driving a car. Am I correct that BUI still carries pretty much the same penalties as uh, DWI? If if the state of Louisiana is processing it, that's correct. On uh, with the Coast Guard, we don't have the ability if if we write the offense to. To tie it to your driver's license, if you're a credentialed mariner, we do have the ability to tie it to that, but not not to your driver's license. But one of the things about keeping the kind of relationships we keep with the uh, with the state officials is that uh, is that well, most often in our, in our policy, our our, le- our memorandum of agreement with the state of Louisiana calls for us turning our 
if we find a boater who's uh, suspected to be impaired, we're going to bring the state into the picture and let them prosecute it because they uh, they have a few more resources in their toolbox to deal with intoxicated boaters than we do. They can make those those, those penalties matter a little bit more than we can. So, yeah, the, the, the penalties are most assuredly there. And, uh, you know, a minimum of 20 percent of the, uh, the accidents we have out there are uh, alcohol is a contributing factor. And because it's kind of difficult to get that data, I suspect it's actually a good bit higher than that. And and think about it this way, Don. You've been offshore fishing before, and uh, and, and it's been sloppy out there. It's hot. You're, uh, even though you're drinking a, uh, a lot of water or Gatorade or whatever, you're getting dehydrated. That boat rocking back and forth is is affecting your, your balance, your dexterity. Just the, the, the natural environment of being out there on a boat has a an impairing factor. And then, you know, all those things contribute to fatigue, and fatigue is a uh, is an impairing factor as well. So absent alcohol, just, just being out there on the water in a boat, rocking back and forth in the, the heat and sun all day, is going to diminish your faculties to some degree. So we can ill afford to add alcohol to the mix. And I'd like to add that, Let's don't just think about it in terms of the operator. I've, you know, in my 33 years of working with a Coast Guard, I've run a number of heartbreaking SAR cases that involve passengers on boats who are intoxicated. So it's it's just the the marine environment is just too un, unforgiving to add alcohol to the mix. Uh, save the celebration for when you hit the dock, please. Oh, I'm with you on that. Designated driver is not always the answer. It is sometimes in a vehicle, but uh, not so much in a boat. Uh, Paul, we're going to take a break here and we come back. Uh, something else I think we really need to bring out is operating vessels in the fog. Boy, I get so many people that tell me nightmare stories of what they see out there doing foggy conditions, and we are in the heart of it here with the Mississippi River. We're kind of coming out of the fog season, but even in this time of the year, we can still experience it. But, boy, we had some difficult fog situations, and some of the things I heard were just incredible. We'll be back to keep our discussion going about safe boating. Safe boating week is coming up, and there's a celebration. I want to invite you to come by and uh, see Paul and the Coast Guard and the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and the auxiliary and all those folks next saturday 10 to 2 it's going to be at the coast guard uh over there near the uh coast i think it's called the officially is called the coast guard station at the bucktown harbor from 10 to 2 paul will give you some better directions when we come back right after this time out and we're talking about safe boating with Paul Bernard. Paul is a recreational boating safety specialist with the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, he will be out at the Coast Guard Station in New Orleans near Bucktown Harbor. Ten to two, there's going to be lots of activities to go by. Everything is absolutely free out there. Paul, I did want to spend a little time talking about fog. I, I think that people underestimate the seriousness and the hazards that are associated with boating in a fog. Uh, I got a lot of reports, particularly this year more than others, about, I guess because maybe we had more conditions of fog on the lower Mississippi River. But it's kind of like what we talked about before with the Paddle Palooza decision, whether you go with a tournament or you postpone it. A lot of people have a lot of things on the line. Maybe it's duck season. They've only got a couple of hunts planned. They don't want to miss out on it. People come in from out of town as a tuna bite goes on at the lump during a foggy time of the year. And instead of playing, taking the safe way out and maybe delaying the trip or rescheduling it for another time, they decide to go out in a fog. And, and that can really be dangerous because 
you know, you just you lose everything. I mean, I've been out there, and you don't know what's up. You don't know what's down. You can't hear another boat coming. You hear your own boat. It really is a scary situation. And unless you've got radar, even if you have radar, the other boats, if you're doing defensive boating, they don't have radar on them. What do you all suggest uh, for dealing with the fog? If it's not absolutely necessary to go, I would just say postpone the trip. And, that, again, it's just like Paddlepalooza. That's really hard to do because people build vacations around, uh, you, you know, around their activities. So, let's if, if you if you're not running a radar, you have to go absolute bare minimum speed. Don, uh, you, you and I talked about this once before. Uh, so many people will treat that GPS as if it's a radar. Well, they can see, surely they can see where they're going but they can't see the other boats that are out there. Just this year, we had somebody that was operating down uh, uh, down around Hopedale area running uh, at planing speeds in the fog, and uh, their GPS did not show a point of land that popped out of the fog right in front of them. They, they made an abrupt turn, uh, ejected two people. One of those people ended up being a fatality. You cannot treat your, your, your GPS as if it's a, a radar at all. And even if you do have a radar, it's like you said, there's other people out there that don't have radars that may not see you. It's it's just a dangerous situation. I ran rescue boats for the Coast Guard for 20 years, and when when we got one of those nail-biting SAR cases in the middle of uh, in the middle of a heavy fog, to me, it's just no fun. It's it's too much work. It takes the fun right out of something like that. So I would say, if, if it's one of those foggy days like that, uh, find something. Uh, close to the launch or just call it off for another day but yeah, you absolutely again, uh, have to travel at a safe speed in the fog it's uh I, I, I've, picked, I've been on patrol in a coast guard boat in the fog and had uh had a a fast approaching boat on my radar coming coming right at me so i, I stopped the patrol boat and in a minute, a, a bass boat comes blasting by about 40 miles an hour. So we lit them up, pulled them over, rode them up for negligent operations. And when we asked him what made him feel comfortable going that fast, he, he, he pointed to his GPS. He said, I've got a, a great chart card in my GPS. And, well, yeah, that might show you where you're going, but it does not show you the other boaters out there. So, and unfortunately, this is it's something that plays out every year somewhere within the district that I work somebody's going to treat that radar as if it's or that GPS as, as if it's a radar and, and um, it's going to result in a disaster. You know, another place I, I didn't bring up, but I do want to, is uh, that Spoil Bank Canal, which is out of Hopedale Marina. When you leave there, they, they put the rock dam across to Mr. Go, and people were used to traveling to Mr. Go to get down to Breton Sound and those areas below there. But when they put the rock dam, that meant they had to circumvent it. And there is a small spoil bank canal, which is extremely hazardous, that, that you can go around that Mr. Go Dam and eventually get back into it. But on the way down there, there's just a lot of treacherous situations. Number one, you've got all types of users. You've got everything from oyster luggers to shrimp boats to people in small duck boats and, and bay boats and kayaks all using that. And particularly in the wintertime when the canal, when the, the canal is very low, uh, there's only so much room in the middle of it that you can run in and still have water. And I am, we have had one fatality there, and I'm surprised there haven't been more accidents there. But what I'm trying to make a point is when there are areas that are like that, 
What would be the possibility, and, and I guess the answer is money. That always seems to be the answer. How could we get signs posting that as a dangerous curve or area, uh, hazardous area ahead? Because when you're out there on the boat, there's not much to read. Any signs that people see, I think they read them. Well, I've never actually thought about putting a sign uh, a sign there that tells people to uh, that, that, that that provides to to them a warning uh, that that's specific to that waterway. But I will say this, Don: if if we if we have concerns like that, bring them to my attention, and I'll uh, I'll reach out to the state of Louisiana Boating Law Administrator, and we'll uh, we'll get our heads together and see if there's something like that that we can do. But Absent those signs, we have to remind our boaters to to travel at a safe speed. So if you're coming up to one of those bends in that canal, and I'm, I'm not intimately familiar with it, but it's got some bends in it. If you're coming around one of those blind bends and you're running 30, 35 miles an hour, you have to assume that there's somebody on the other side of that blind bend. And maybe it's somebody that's coming at you at 35 or 40 miles an hour. You and it's unfortunate too because you don't want to come off a plane. If you come off of a plane, uh, you're going to be dredging to get back up exactly. on a plane. Exactly. So exactly. it's it's a, it's a tough spot for boaters to be in, but you absolutely have to assume that there's somebody on the other side of that blind bin. I'm I, I'm glad you brought this up because that's when I when I start doing my research into collisions. Most often, those collisions are taking place in an area where there's a waterway intersection that is obstructed by vegetation or buildings, a point of land, or a a blind bend like one of those you would find back in that spoil canal. And I think that it's one of those things we kind of get out there, we're looking around, we don't see any other boaters, we kind of assume we might be the only other boat on the water, but heck, it's South Louisiana. There's a high degree of likelihood there's somebody on the other side of that. So you got to drop off a step, trim that engine up, and idle along until you can find enough water to get yourself back up on a plane. Uh, Paul, we don't do this enough. Exactly. Any is too many. We don't do this far enough and want to keep you and uh, invite you to come back with us and invite everybody to come out there next weekend, 10 to 2. It's going to be out there at the near the Bucktown Harbor at the U.S. Coast Guard Station between 10 and 2. Uh, I plan on being out there, so I'll see you, Paul, and I, I got some ideas on how we can maybe keep this going a little more frequently, like on every program, and see if we can work something out with that. And thanks for taking the time with us, and thanks for being such a dedicated servant to the public. We appreciate it. Thank you, Don. All right, coming up uh, after the NBC Sports Update, we're going to talk fishing rodeos. They're getting ready to come on down in Louisiana, and you tell you how you can participate. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.